Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Rebecca, starring Laurence Olivier, Joan Fontaine, and Judith Anderson, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we're closing the Master of Suspense Part 1 cask with the viewing of Rebecca from 1940. This is going to be Hitchcock's first foray into American cinema by way of David O. Selznick. And Matt and I just had what we called the Rye Watch. We just finished watching it in the other room there. And so we're fresh as can be ready to talk about Rebecca. This should be a fun one. The video that you gave us, the Criterion Collection one that you had, was really nice. Well, this this was a film, too, that had been kind of out of circulation for a long time. I think maybe some of the only ways you could really see this film was maybe on Turner Classic Movies. Um, I don't think it got a DVD release until, like, 2008, 2009. So, so I found a copy of this that I used to use in my class mm-hmm. and I paid upwards of $50 for the DVD version that I had. It'd be like I, an import or something. It was actually, it was an import that they had at Hastings of all places. And boy, we paid for it. Yeah. Uh, this is much, much higher quality. Oh yeah. I would recommend for people that haven't seen this film, check it out in the newest best version. I do think it mm-hmm. significantly increased the viewing quality. Excellent. Yeah. Well, cheers, Matt. We got cheers, some more cheers. of the McAllen. We got to finish this bottle by today's episode because, <laughs> because it goes down really good. So it might not be hard. Exactly. So because next week we're mm-hmm. starting a whole new thing and we'll announce that at the end of the episode. <laughs> Teaser. Enjoy this quality yeah enjoy it this week enjoy it while you can right yeah that's 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 really good um we we should kind of dabble maybe into some of the other mccallan um ages and different um maturations because that's that's fairly pleasant the final shout out to my brother for the uh, there you go supremely excellent christmas gift we'll have to do scotch room probably when we talk about like classic hollywood because that seems like a scotchy type of drink um so if we ever come back to like Humphrey Bogart and like the John Huston films and, you know, the Cary Grant and some of those films, we have to bring scotch back into the equation. At least if we do The Graduate, we'll have scotch and bourbon and whichever one you request, I'll purposely pour you the other one in honor of that film. Excellent. Scotch or bourbon? Scotch. Okay, bourbon. Perfect. Um, over and over and over in that movie. Exactly. Well, excellent. Matt, why don't you go ahead and hit us with the flight question for this week? It's something you've been, um, you know, talking about, you know, with you know, kind of the roles Hitchcock has for some of his actors and actresses. So why don't you set that up for us? There's a lot of discussion about the women that Hitchcock uses in film, but I think the discussion that isn't had enough is about the roles of men that he uses in film. I think there are quintessential looks that he goes for. For sure. With uh, the characters that he uses in juxtaposition with each other in his film. So my question for The Flight is, in all of his films... okay. Which do you think is the most quintessential casting of the most Hitchcockian-esque male and female leads Excellent. in a film? Do I get to go first this of week? Of course you do. All righty. Well, um, yeah, like looking at the, you know, the look of, you know, and the role, I kind of think of like the role that they play in the film too kind of has a lot to do with it. And, you know, Joan Fontaine plays a really interesting role juxtaposed with Laurence Olivier in the film we're going to talk about today. But if I had to pick one, just one, you know, we've done a lot of Jimmy Stewart and for good reason, too. But I kind of have to go Cary Grant in North by Northwest for my male. 
um, talk about a man kind of thrust a little fish out of water in this crazy, like insane spy plot. It becomes a spy movie. Um, but the way he handles it with the gravitas, it's total leading man material. But to me, uh, like a, a role that Hitchcock likes to play with is kind of like the every man thrust into the extraordinary. And I think that film fits it pretty well because Cary Grant sells it pretty well because he's Cary Grant. <laughs> like the, the, I always loved the little bit in mountain rush more with him and trying to say, save Eva Marie Saint to there on, um, on like the heads of Washington and all of them, like very epic and grandiose, but handled by, maybe one of the only people that could have handled that type of character at that time. So I think that fits him pretty well. Uh, for my female, I have to go, you know, with like the look and then also looking at her role in this film because she is the physical embodiment of investigation in this film, but primarily because of her introduction in the film. I have to go Grace Kelly in Rear Window. You know, just she's so striking. It's almost dreamlike when she's introduced and goes and plants a big kiss on 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 um, Jimmy Stewart um, in the bed. That's so iconic. But for all the voyeurism and the quasi Sherlock Holmes detectiveness in that film, she's the one that's physically because her legs aren't broken. She's able to do a good majority of the work in that film. And I, I think she plays a very important part. In, and we've talked about, you know, the whole wedding ring uh, bit with Darwald. Right. She's very iconic, but I got to also give a shout out to, to Teresa Wright in Shadow of a Doubt. I was thinking when we were watching Rebecca, a lot of Hitchcock's films are very gothic. They're very psychological. They're very, you know, people that have very well-established careers or they're wartime. Um, things like that. Hitchcock didn't do too much in like small town Americana. And I think Shadow of a Doubt fits that pretty well, especially with this, this woman that's infatuated with her uncle. And what do you do when you find out that he might be this serial killer? Right. And I think she handles that, um, that question very well. And um, yeah, I got to give a little, a little nod to her. Hard, hard not. Uh, also, too, um, you know, Anthony Hopkins is Norman Bates, but you know, you can also kind of throw a little bit too, like a little to John Gavin's way as Sam Luma. I think he plays a very important part in that film as well. It's a perfect setup, so I'm going to run with it. You just named my my leading man. Okay. It's Anthony Perkins. Oh, good. He's just got that boyish, disarming quality about him that Hitchcock masterfully shows uh, on his in his work that makes you familiar with the character long before you ever get to know them in the movie. Yeah. Norman Bates is such a friendly character that is the guy that always has the umbrella and will gladly make you the sandwiches. And oh, we have 12 rooms, 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. Right. It's so welcoming. Yeah, he's just very friendly. Mm -hmm. They don't have a lot of work together, and I think you can probably make a good argument that Anthony Perkins' career might be somewhat disappointing in Hollywood. Sure. He's yep. got some moments, yeah. but this is going to be the big one. He kind of takes the ah shucks nature that I spoke last week about of Jimmy Stewart and mixes it with kind of the look or the affect of Cary Grant because mm -hmm. they do have the sort of dark features yeah. similar. So that's going to be... My guy, I have to also mention it was close. Mm -hmm. uh, Rod Taylor is close in the birds. Okay. Um, I think the thing that was the deal breaker between him and Anthony Perkins for me is he ends up being a little bit too champion-esque sure. for me to yeah. not be quite the everyman that Hitchcock really, really yeah. 
um, masterfully does. There's also some discussion I think that we could probably have fairly with Farley Granger mm -hmm. in uh, Strangers on a Train. Oh, yeah. Because that's a familiar place that I think a lot of people have been in when presented with a theoretical discussion and you have it, then it plays out in a sum total that also is familiar in rope. So we're oh, yeah. talking about another theme that he likes, oh, but yeah. it's going to be Anthony Perkins. Excellent. Perfect. Female is Ingrid Bergman and Notorious. Mm -hmm. What are you going to say about her? I think there's two versions of women in Hollywood at this point. There is the garbo, refined, exquisite, featured woman, which certainly would encompass the Ingrid Bergman uh, character that I just spoke about. And then there's the more, and I mean this respectfully, round, welcoming, rough and tumble, curvy, Monroe-esque. Mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. the two way, the, up to this point, 1960, that's the two kind of ways that women are going to be depicted in film. Yeah. Kim Novak in Vertigo falls to me on the Marilyn Monroe side. Ingrid Bergman is classic. Yeah. At a time where classic Hollywood was sort of becoming a little bit more welcoming to not classic, but equally accepted by the audiences with different looks. Oh yeah. She's icy just because of the Eastern European feel, which he likes. She plays out fascistly in not a fascist way, but the ice queen, the embodiment of blonde. Yeah. If you handle her too much, she might break. Mm -hmm. Kim Novak doesn't present that. Kim Novak's much more rough and tumble. And I think Tippi Hedren is also a little bit more rough and tumble, certainly in the birds we see her get, get you know, and in, and in Marnie. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it's Ingrid Bergman in Notorious. Yeah, that's a good choice. Thank you. Yeah. Guess he worked with her on that one and then another one too, right? Um, Spellbound. Spellbound, yeah. Forgettable film. <laughs> Not the Salvador Dali dream sequence, so that's pretty cool. Right. Those are excellent. Those are pretty good choices. But truth be told, Matt, Hitchcock got to work with a lot of really great talent throughout his career. Like, he was kind of spoiled, really. Yes. And we, we didn't mention our boy, Hume Cronin, like, showing up in a couple of his films. Not quite leading man material, but, like... One of the, I think, the underrated things about Hitchcock's films is the supporting cast. Uh, Vera Miles, Barbara Bel Geddes, you know, these people that have Joseph or... Um, <laughs> I, I can never remember his name in Shadow of a Doubt. He's he's the guardian angel in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yeah. But um, these type of, of characters, and especially in this film, Judith Anderson is Mrs. Danvers. So let's just get right into it, and it's happy hour time, and, and let's get to our review breakdown of Rebecca. And finally, there was Mandalay. Mandalay, secretive and silent. Time could not mar the perfect symmetry of those walls. Moonlight can play odd tricks upon the fancy. And suddenly it seemed to me that light came from the windows. And then a cloud came upon the moon and hovered an instant like a dark hand before a face. The illusion went with it. I looked upon a desolate shell with no whisper of the past about its staring walls. So Rebecca opens up with this great tracking model shot of this gorgeous, exquisite mansion on the precipice of this hill, Manderley. You mentioned to me when we were watching how very Citizen Kane this is, this is Xanadu, um, which is interesting because that's that's two years later, and there's a lot of parallels between the like some imagery of both of these films. 
that happens a couple times for me in this movie. There's, it's hard, and and you said it actually, mm-hmm. when we get to the Miss Danvers breakdown, that's the Bella Lugosi wife that was never Bella Lugosi's wife, right? Yeah, Dracula's wife. <laughs> I think the influence of Browning and Dracula in this film, you would have to be an idiot, as uh, Maxim says, <laughs> calls uh, the second Mrs. DeWinter in this film multiple times, uh-huh. to not recognize. And then I don't think you can, but see the influence that this has on other works going forward, notably and noticeably. I mean that. Citizen Kane. If you remove her voice over that poem that you just read or that monologue, mm-hmm. it is Xanadu. Charles Foster Kane. It yeah, is. Yeah, that's the same thing. It even ends the same way, doesn't it? Yeah, There's with the fiery sequence and burning symbology. So <laughs> it's important, I think, the time of those. So, so. We may come back to that. So you're really good in this space, Mm -hmm. Mr. Never Forget a Single Date Ever. Will you lay out with those three films the dates for Ryan Nation? That's Dracula, this film, and then Citizen Kane. I believe, yeah, Dracula was, I think, 31. 31, right. This is 40. 40. And Citizen Kane was 42. Okay, so the influence then from each to the other needs to be noted because that is going to matter. Mm -hmm. We'll get into this as the show unfolds today Mm -hmm. this is hitchcock's most critically acclaimed film Mm -hmm. in the oscar realm the award pantheon yep Mm -hmm. this man who never wins best director much like cary grant's never going to win best actor really he never won one never won one wow nominated but never won wow now fontaine will win one Mm -hmm. she's actually not going to win for this one specifically she's going to win for her next endeavor with hitchcock which is suspicion Suspicion. Mm -hmm. but everyone basically agreed that this was we missed on Rebecca and you should have won for that. So this is pretty much the same character in suspicion and it mostly is. Mm -hmm. So she won it for that film, but mostly it had to do with the nod to her performance Mm -hmm. in this. It's interesting. Like I've almost like lifetime achievement in a dual film. They do that all the time. You know, you know, I'll do respect to Joaquin Phoenix and his performance in the, in Joker, but I feel like he's going to win, but it's kind of the same thing. Like you've been good for so many years we oh, got DiCaprio and the Aviator. Yeah, we, no, yeah, yeah, like yeah, winning for like yeah, a film. The it was uh, the Revenant. He's, I mean, yeah, yeah. the Revenant. Thank He's you. been good in so many other films besides that, and even better. To, well, to that, go back fact. to Gilbert Grape. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so we set this up, and um, I think the influence that Hitchcock has in cinema is vast, but upon its contemporary counterparts at the time. Let's include Citizen Kane. You said Gaslight. You can't but measure how influential this piece is towards those. It's tough to pull off Victorian era anything. I, you know, I was watching this too, and another one that's further, like a generation away still. Mm-hmm. It's the Innocence. Exactly. The <clears throat> governess and the Innocence is essentially Miss Danvers. Miss Danvers and uh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a really important movie for setting a tone with that setting victoria-esque mansion opulent and that's one that's one thing the film has really going for it is tone the look the feel the shadows i think i mentioned a couple times like this it's a ghostly film with like no ghosts you just you kind of feel it in the fog and the lighting and just kind of how it's how it's shot uh, it was also winner of the Academy Award for Best Cinematography back in the day when they would do a separate one for black and white and color uh, uh, at that time. But let's kind of get right into the plot. We're introduced to Laurence Olivier, who plays um, 
the full name is like Maximus Decimus Meridia, so that's that's Gladiator. But it's some ridiculous long thing. Something theme. Fortescue Maximus De Winter. Yeah. We call him Maxim or Max for short, who's kind of on the the the, the on the bluffs here, looking like he's gonna just jump off and kill himself before he's stopped by now. This is gonna just be interesting. We'll just call her Joan Fontaine or the second Mrs. De Winter. because uh, she's never giving a real name, which is very peculiar and it, it kind of has a lot to do with like her character as non, nondescript nondescript yeah exactly On purpose mm-hmm. i feel bad for joan fontaine in a lot of this film. oh i do too she doesn't ever well I, let me take that back she does eventually step up and try to assume the mantle of the first lady of manderley you know, like an hour and 10 in movie we stopped and talked about it right yeah that's mm-hmm. where it starts to happen but for the first 75 minutes of the movie, everyone's pushing her around and she takes it. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it's Joan Fontaine. So yeah. you look at it and you're like, are you all looking at the same female that I am? Because <laughs> exactly. She's called idiotic and frumpy. Like if, mm-hmm. if Rebecca, the movie is Baskin Robbins and the sum total of its 31 flavors. Okay. She's vanilla. Yeah. Just not, which she shouldn't be vanilla. She should be like featured Mint flavor of the chip. month. <laughs> but they portray her as, oh yeah, that's there's the vanilla. Not even French vanilla. There's just the the knockoff vanilla down there. If you want to just come and be that guy in Baskin I'm a Robbins. bubble gum guy myself. I eat that the, the, that shitty gum and then I just end up swallowing. <laughs> it's disgusting. It is disgusting. <laughs> but that's, it's a bold play from Hitchcock to I use her so. like that. Oh. She's not dumb. No. But... God, they don't. He can't even bother to give her. That's not him. That's Dumarie also. Yeah, yeah. That's the source material. They can't even bother to give this poor gal a name. Yeah. So she's she, got to fulfill. Like, think about the most highly recognized female in the community that houses Manderley. She gets to assume that mantle, and they won't even give her a name. Yeah. It's, it's kind of messed up. And then, so she's infatuated with Max and. They take a liking. They're both kind of on holiday here at Monte Carlo. Um, but um, Joan Fontaine has this kind of like pretty shitty like secretarial job with this. And I think we said this is like a 1940s classic Hollywood trope of this like frumpy late early 50s like spinster bat spinster bat like every film has this character like no joke like every and she's just the worst man. They could not have gotten her out of this film fast enough. Um, so she's kind of there just doing her duties and she catches cold in bed. So she's like all held up eating chocolates to cut the cough medicine with it's wretched. Give me some chocolate. Give me some chocolate. No more chocolates for you. No more chocolates. Have a salad. But this gives her the time to kind of get to know Max a little bit better and, and get a little closer, uh, and just become more infatuated. It's almost like it's very trance-like because he's still not good to her no. during this. You brought up Hume Cronin earlier. Yeah. And it made me think about what's the most comedic element in Hitchcock's film. Now, he does have a foray into a comedic film, which is The Trouble with Harry. Mm-hmm. It's a dark comedy, but I actually rather, rather enjoy that oh, movie. That one's pretty good. He's presenting, what the heck's her name? Um, Van... This spinster guy. Oh, yeah. Edith Van Topper. Mm-hmm. Van mm-hmm. something. Van Hopper, yeah. There you go, Van Hopper. Presenting her, I think, as in what's a bit of a dry period in the movie, and I think Hitchcock's even aware of that, mm-hmm. the courting process and even pre-courting process. 
to lighten the mood because she's got a couple of things in there that there's no way. Mm-hmm. Even in 1940, people weren't like, oh my gosh, that's so absurd. That has to be comedy because she comes across. I had a couple laugh out loud moments. The yeah. chocolate thing we just did. Yeah. She's just this over the top matriarch that is, um, well, I wasn't going to curse anymore on the podcast. So that's a B and treats her female handmaid, which is Joan Fontaine, like trash, Mm -hmm. with no acknowledgement of how awful she's being, except we, okay, so a couple Hitchcock tropes, comedy, Mm -hmm. and then we know more than the people on the screen because we're like, this lady is ridiculous. (laughs) I think she actually thinks she's got a shot with Maxim and is trying to seduce him into some relationship, not seduce in that way but like bring him into her her fold as she's going to be the one that shows him this grand time in monte carlo and it's laughable big time so the courting process has concluded and the courting it's like almost like it feels like 30 minutes it's probably more like 20 but it takes a while for this to kind of kind of get it the wheels going on, on it a little bit right so you know this this spinster woman um, finds out her daughter's going to be engaged and she's back to New York. So this is going to take Joan Fontaine back to New York away from Max. And she's really kind of troubled with this, looking for him on the last day, trying to call him, leave him a message, trying to say just like, I'm in love with you. Just try to get that like last piece out of there. And so finally she she gets that moment and just, Lawrence Olivier, uh, Max, is just, just like, will you marry me? Like it's, it's some type of thing. Either you go to America with Mrs. Van Hopper or you come home to Mandalay with me. You mean you want a secretary or something? I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Marry me, you little fool. He calls her a lot of names the whole movie. Yeah. I think he calls her an idiot. Mm-hmm. They make fun. Like, once she, okay, she obviously says yes. Yeah, yeah. And then we're off. But and still, even in the engagement, will you marry me? You little fool. You little fool. It's just like a slap across the face. It is, like, yeah, and we've we've sort of said this during the watch. Mm-hmm. He's such a thespian, yeah, two thespian, the master thespian. Yeah. It's kind of silly mm-hmm. at some points. He's just acting so formally in every scene. Yeah, and you know, Sir Lawrence Olivier speaks to the grandiose nature of this trained train Shakespearean actor. like really great in like a lot of those roles, but like here it's just, yeah, it's, it's really intense. If you add a little cowboy to him, you'd get Clark Gable. Mm-hmm. And I think we both said we prefer Gable. Yeah. They essentially look exactly alike mm-hmm. and they are at the same time. So it's the studio system saying you have yours and we have ours and, these make money, so here's your Clark Gable, and here's our Olivier. Or yeah, or this one's available, this one's not available. So you kind of have to wonder what Joan Fontaine's interest is because there's an age difference. Another thing Hitchcock likes to use between his couples: the man is significantly older than the woman. Is it just that he offers her a better life with some maybe this grand lifestyle? Because for as vanilla as the movie would have you believe Joan Fontaine is, Mm -hmm. Maxim de Winter's days essentially consist of running the business affairs of the estate and then... Yeah, what's his job? Hosting. (laughs) Well, we we finally figured it out. You and I together today. He's a landlord. (laughs) Exactly. They talk about collecting rent. Yeah. We're past the feudal state, so he's not some feudal noble. Mm -hmm. He's a landlord. Mm -hmm. 
So I guess he goes and checks on his clients and his tenants and just attends to the affairs of Mandalay. Meanwhile, Joan Fontaine is left at home to do mostly nothing, hang out in this. Well, you made a joke about it. It was true. Yeah. You said everybody in that place would be big as a, you know, super fat. Super a- fat. He's eating seven course meals for every meal. So not just like... Like some eggs and bacon, you got the bacon, you got the pancakes, and you'd have some French toast. In there. room A. Yeah, in room A, and then you go to lunch, and then you get, you got the you got the poached eggs, and you're going to have this, and you're going to have the sandwich. And like, in yeah. the meanwhile, from those two places, there's two other rooms that you'll pass, and there'll be tea and crumpets in this room, and the mid-morning fire. And so she's just sort of toiling away, I think. Well, she's just going through the motions. Yeah, toiling or- away her days with the function of just the formality of being in the process of what a day is. How boring. Exactly. So let's get to Mandalay, because Mandalay in and of itself is very interesting. And the first kind of person we're introduced to, and I'm glad you said Dracula and the influences possibly of Todd Browning on this film, is, you know, the character of Mrs. Danvers. This is Mrs. Danvers. How do you do? How do you do? I have everything in readiness for you. That's very good of you. I, I didn't expect anything. I don't think I've seen Judith Anderson in any other film, or if she was, I just I don't remember it as much as this performance. And she's really good at this. Uh, really good at playing steely, cold, almost one-note emotion, but it fits that character very well because... She is so vampiric. I don't even know if that's a word, but it's a word now on Rice Smile Films. She's so, she like floats from scene to scene. And I, I think I mentioned to you too, or her hands are like in this fixed position, almost, almost as if she was laying in a coffin. And that's how she walks. She doesn't leave that position. Uh, what do you What do you think of this? Uh, she, she's a really interesting character and we're going to find out a little about, uh, more about her a little later, but she's just so cold. This is a cold bitch. <laughs> Vampiric is spot on. Yeah. Is that a word? Yes. It's a word now. (laughs) It is. For all of her moments that are just so rigid, and she's terrific with her face. Mm Mm-hmm. Her, the acting and the emotion that she uses in her face is is superb. And how they did her hair. It's like this weird pulled back braid, like... I just kept thinking the whole time, I want to see a movie with her and Dracula together to make whatever that became. Like, I want to see the romance between her and Bella Lugosi in a vampire epic. No, like, they just are, are so... Yeah, it, it, I guess maybe I don't really want to see that, but what I kept thinking is, man, she is just the opposite of him, the female opposite of him. She's great. Well, they plucked her, like, essentially out of the Universal Monster film slate and put her in this film. Like, she, the, the apparition she she portrays and the way she manipulates and makes just guilt trips uh Mrs. De Winter, second Mrs. De Winter into things is just so creepy like there's there's the scene later and we'll we'll, we'll kind of work up to this but like she's almost like OCD oh no that doesn't go there that goes it's just mm-hmm. a little it's just a little this way and I'm saved the underwear and I saved all this and I think I said out loud I was like dear god like it's creepy very creepy the uh, Todd Browning effect mm-hmm. is only furthered at this moment because we're working on a spectral element and now almost the handler of that spectral element, which would be Judith Anderson, mm-hmm. Mrs. Danvers. We'll just call her Danny because that's what everybody calls her, who's friendly, which I don't know how you're friendly with her, but I guess some mm-hmm. people get there. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me think a lot watching this movie if Hitchcock really missed 
an opportunity because I think he wants to do a true supernatural film, but probably was so formal and so grand in his own filmmaking that would never allow himself to stoop to something that involved ghosts. Cause there's three films that clearly do that for me. This is one you brought it up earlier. Like you said in the film, like this is there's ghosts all around, which is Rebecca. She yeah. haunts the second Mrs. De Winter. Exactly. Certainly vertigo. Mm-hmm. And third, I'm going to give you Marnie. It's the ghost of the past that haunts Tippy Hedren in mm-hmm. that film. Mm-hmm. I, you can see he likes it. Well, even, even, even Mrs. Bates, you know, Norma Bates. Okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, true supernatural. Yeah. Like, like make the innocence mm-hmm. kind of, I want to make that movie, but I just can't stoop to that point. Exactly. Because he's, he does ghosts in a way that you never see them and they're not officially like bringing the paranormal team with a little scanner to find the heat signature kind of ghost <laughs> like that. But, but present without having to be there. Sure. Everything that Miss the second Mrs. DeWinter comes into contact with at the be up to about the midpoint in the film has a monogrammed R or it's uh, the pillow that she slept on or the clothes or the picture or the portrait or whatever it might be. She's having to fill the shoes of this woman who we're going to come to find out later is not who we perceive her to be as this regal, fine woman of, of nature and exquisite taste. No, she's a horrible person we come to find out. Mm-hmm. And we're glad then that maybe Joan Fontaine doesn't become Rebecca number two. But the point is, she's filling an impossible task. And even Van Hopper tells mm-hmm. her when she does, like, I'm leaving you, I'm going to run off with my future husband. Yes, She looks at her and literally steps back 10 feet and gives her the twice over and like kind of laughs and shakes her head like good luck honey you got no chance exactly you do you know what you're getting your you plain simple vanilla you're trying to step into rocky road no mm-hmm. shot yeah and like laugh at her but it's joan fontaine at the same time it's jo- right exactly. exactly it's joan it's fontaine a very beautiful woman who was already very well established in england before she ever jumped into the states version of this with hitchcock this yeah. is a this is a fantastic gorgeous woman yeah well-defined actress, great career, and, and we're playing her off as Miss Frumpy Forgettable. That's crazy by Hitchcock. Well, and everyone, let's just kind of go through the motions, too, of like you, we kind of mentioned like the the smorgasbord of food being eaten at Mandalay, but, you know, you get some visitors and some townies that come in. Um, townies, I love that word. <laughs> so townies. What's his name and his wife? Um, yeah. Um, English gentleman. Nigel Yeah, Nigel Bruce. Bruce and his wife that just essentially come in, especially the wife, just to insult her. Just like, are you wearing that? Or like, you wouldn't Is this really your hair? Around. And she was much more beautiful than you. And like, oh she God, used you, to. He must not care about fashion anymore. Look yeah, at you. Yeah, Jesus, and, you put this on this morning? And she used to do this and she used to do that. And it's just like, almost like, God, slap these people or something. And he's clearly not over the death of his first wife yet. He's slumming it. Look at who he married. I mean, my gosh, Miss Vanilla over here. Yeah, comments usually relegated to say behind someone's back, right to your face. <laughs> Spot, exactly. <laughs> right to, to where you, you want to go and shake Joan Fontana and be like, stop taking that. Yeah, tell tell, tell her something. She, she And she's going to, but yeah, this is just kind of the, the day-to-day and it's, it's very perplexing and it's a psychological mind game of just manipulation and insults that, man, if I was Joan Fontana, I'd just be like, I'm out of here. Like, I I don't need any part of this. Like, this is awful. And I don't even know if Max really likes me. And the question I would also further that with, you're right, mm-hmm. is does she really like him? Because how can you? Mm-hmm. He's just this moody, 
up and down. I don't want to say abusive because that's too far, but this petulant, moody, regal, blech. like what is he offering other than this ornate, lavish lifestyle? He's oppressive. And then there's a really important moment, one specific scene that plays out in a large context in the film. And this is not like some nugget. This is a big moment. <laughs> She's sitting at the desk where the first Rebecca wrote her morning letters. Oh my God. Could you imagine that being the first thing you eat and then the sit down to write your letters? <laughs> We're living in Doleville. Okay. So set in the middle of 18 boring, but it's not right. Next she's going to go nip by the window. She, she's exactly. That'd be the highlight of the day. Yeah. She sits down and she knocks this statue off mm -hmm. the desk, which is this China Cupid doll thing and freaks out forgetting the whole time. It's her house. Yeah. And what's Miss Danvers going to do about it? But she's just so oppressed. And kind of scared. And they, they portray Judith Anderson as like this physically imposing force that glides from scene to scene. Did you notice you never in this movie hear her walk? Mm -mm. Yeah, it's very... I always kind of come back Ghastly. to... Yeah, I always come back to that scene in uh, a House on Haunted Hill with the ghost and essentially on roller skates. Oh, yeah. That's kind of how she's moving in this very apparition-like... So she's an imposing force. You don't want to cross Mrs. Danvers. So yeah, if I break a statue, I got to hide this thing because what's she going to do to me? No name. Everybody that knew Rebecca comes in and has some comment on your look. Mm -hmm. Your previous employer doesn't think that you're capable of filling the mantle of governess or heiress of the Manderley estate. Your husband is busy toiling at the affairs of whatever nothing is because he has 50 handlers during the day, so he can't be bothered. You're scared of the, the chief made whatever the hell you want to give the title of to miss danvers chief made okay <laughs> chief made she's just lost she's just getting pounded by the waves <clears throat> of the totality of manderley and if she'll just stand up to herself and the forces that oppose her maybe she'll at least get a name but that's what's really effective so far up to the film is this nondescript woman has essentially ascended to regal status with no ability to do it as defined by the film. Feel this. It was a Christmas present from Mr. De Winter. He was always giving her expensive gifts the whole year round. And we didn't throw any of it away. I keep it on the way on this side. Oh, and let's get to this. Oh, God, yeah. They were made specially for her by the nuns in the convent of St. Clair. The nuns in the convent are made Rebecca underwear and negligee and lingerie? What? Not only is that expensive, but it, man, it just is dripping with a lesbian-like feel to sure. it. Yeah, yeah. Now, they're uh, going to play out Rebecca's... <laughs> sexuality in a larger way as the movie progresses, but this is incestuous <laughs> sexual. Sure. I mean, right. This is something that Hitchcock is pretty daring at because in suspicion, he's going to do another version of the same thing. And this is not a, this is not allowed to be done. Oh, well, production code. We're well, gonna, gonna there's get... no way you can do that. Hitchcock has to be like one of the best filmmakers at like tackling very taboos, whether it's homosexuality, lesbianism, um, you know, whatever, murder, uh, the killers getting away with the crime without really kind of saying that. You know what I mean? Yes. He's very subtle with that. He's a very subtle filmmaker. He doesn't beat you over the head with his thematic elements. And that's very well at play here. 
this scene is so creepy. I had like visions of vertigo again with like trying to like, you know, mm -hmm. make over someone and like, not only like, are you not perfect and don't look like her and you're not doing the actions of the first Mrs. De Winter, but we kept all her stuff here perfectly pristine and we're never going to change this room and oh, you're using the brush, but it goes this way and this way and you need to use it this way. And this is what she'd wear in bed. <laughs> and she shows her, which is as see-through as basically nothing anyway. And look, you can see my hand underneath it, which to me, mm -hmm. how many times has her hand been underneath it? Mm -hmm. It's so loaded and, but also so smart because you've got to navigate the haze code and all of the production stuff working. Okay. So here's this expensive gifts that he's given her. Mm -hmm. What's he given you? Oh, nothing. Yeah. Maybe you're not worthy. Sure. Here's how I used to comb her hair and don't you dare move her brush. And not an inch, literally an inch. Let me show you all of her lingerie. I know exactly where it is and where it was made. Mm -hmm. And I also put her in and out of it because she does mention undressing her every night. Like she admits it. Like when she undressed every night here with me, wait, I know she's getting ready for bed. Yeah, exactly. Is she that incapable or is she just maybe that willing? Mm -hmm. And then I used to brush her hair and we would talk and she called me Danny. So I've got a little nickname. Daddy. And... I have a thing for her and she had a thing for me and you are walking into a space that you're not allowed to be in. And guess what? We're, about, no, we're about to find out too that the cousin was a part of it as well. <laughs> and yeah. And she makes no qualms about, look, this is my house. This is how I run it. And I'll give you a little decision here. Why don't you choose the sauce for the meal that I'm going to prepare? And then to make matters even worse, the second Mrs. DeWinter mm -hmm. can't even decide on what sauce it is. So will she fit in that lingerie? It wasn't made for her. She can't move the brush. Maxim hasn't bought her any expensive furs. Danny hates her guts. The dog is guarding the room that she's not supposed to go into, which we haven't even been into yet. We have this chief maid who is terrorizing you with no ability to identify her because she's sneaky. She's in hell. Yeah, get out. It's right. Mm -hmm. And what comes home is you get home. Maxim comes home at seven o'clock after running the affairs of the estate. Mm -hmm. And what does he offer? boredom yeah sucks yeah i feel bad for joan fontaine she can do much better yeah oh definitely she should marry carrie grant in suspicion and he'll kill everyone and steal her <laughs> estate exactly does alfred hitchcock yeah have a bone to pick with women possibly you know what i mean oh yeah like if you look at the birds mm -hmm. and vertigo mm -hmm. and psycho mm -hmm. and this movie mm -hmm. and suspicion and i can keep going yeah you know, again, there's a lot of discussion about the typecast woman that he uses. And Fontaine's a little bit different because she's not quite as blonde as he's going to eventually get to. Exactly. He, I, I don't know if I can straight up say he doesn't like them. Yeah. He, even what he does to Bergman and Notorious, mm -hmm. he does not often paint them in a very positive light. Mm -hmm. He all essentially tortures them in a way. Through character. Is that psychosomatic in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, you have a lot of knowledge with his, with his films. I don't think he likes women, I, Jesse. I think you, you could honestly make that argument. Now we're not hearing it from the horse's mouth, Alfred Hitchcock himself, and I, you probably wouldn't tell us outright, but the way women are treated in his films, yeah, you. I think you could. It's Especially here, this is very evident in this film. So, you know, we kind of get... Um, the, the culmination of the breaking of this statue. Oh my God, they broke the statue. What's going to happen? Nothing, essentially. You know, you know, Max kind of was like, oh, it's no big deal. Tell him to go uh, wipe his tears. He's not fired and this and that. And then, but it's, it's kind of a real qualm with Mrs. Danvers because she doesn't want these things broken, put out of place, anything. Um, 
So it leads to kind of like a pretty big blowout between Maxim and Joan Fontaine, where he just leaves. And even in the letter, he's just like so passive aggressive. I'm going to go away for a while. You could probably use a break from a guy or someone like me. It's just so petty. Mm -hmm. Like what a baby. And then leaves this little ugly note as he heads out the door. Like I'm taking my ball and going home to your wife. Yeah. Who's vanilla. Mm -hmm. Like you're not even doing it against Rocky Road. It's vanilla. Mm -hmm. She's the most welcoming, shapeable, malleable, nondescript person that has ever been in a film. Again, I keep going back to this. Mm -hmm. They didn't even give her a name. Yeah. And you're going to lay on that non-named vanilla. Um, I think I probably need a break for you because you're probably sick of people that are like. It's just such a he's I, he's he's such a punk, like such a little chump. Okay, I, I'm trying. I'm I'm really like bastard. Thank you. Oh, oh, you gave me the green light on that word. Yeah, yeah. You can use that one. He's so soft. He's such a bastard. Mm-hmm. And like you said, so he leaves a note to go away. And so then we have a whole day where the second Mrs. DeWinter gets to figure out what the new relationship with Danny is post breaking of this stupid doll in this room that only one person went in that no one cares about. This is where it's going to come to a head because we're introduced to the cousin. Flavel. Yeah. God, Matt, he has such like a Clive Owen like sensibility to him. I just wanted to slap this guy around like <laughs> he's so Clive Owen-y. Okay. Especially when they're in the carriage and he's like eating their picnic. And I'm like, oh my God, get him out of that carriage. Like, why are you letting him do this? (laughs) So anyway, he comes in just from the precipice of the window and he's like playing with the dog. And then we find out that this is Rebecca's cousin and he wants to know where Max is and this and that. And, you know, you kind of get like this little kind of like connection between him and Mrs. Danvers. And you're like, what is this happening here? That's actually not really ever fully explored, so I'm going to let you lay out what you think that's all about. Is there something between the two of them? I don't want to go sh- short of saying that the, the, they were having like a threesome, but she was definitely integral into whatever type of affairs. Maybe there's Rebecca and Flavelle's was more sexual, and Mrs. Danvers, it was kind of like this concoction of, let's see how much of this money or this inheritance or this estate that we can like just dry clean. Something like that is kind of what I see. So he's more of like kind of a male gold digger? I think so. Because he sells cars. God, of course he sells yeah, cars. Exactly. Right? Yeah, Clyde Bowen would sell cars. Mm-hmm. Not Claude Rains, though. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think there's something to that, too. I don't know if I can go threesome either, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. And we do get a little bit of evidence that Rebecca, insofar as the sins that will be um, given to the audience in the film... Mm-hmm are far less than the other ones that Maxim knows about. Cause at the boathouse scene, the mm. cottage, which we're going to get to here in just a minute. Yeah. He tells Joan Fontaine, mm-hmm. she told me some stuff that I would never utter to another living being. It is so grotesque, this woman that I married. So I don't think a threesome would be out of the realm of grotesqueness. And, and, but in regardless that that doesn't change the context of the film. Yeah. There is a strange relationship between Flavelle and Danny mm-hmm. because she's he's the only one that seems to exercise some dominion or sovereignty over her. And she, to his, you go here, you do this, she seems pretty subservient to him. Yeah, you get here because you got to tell them the truth of what happened to Rebecca. That's coming up towards the end of the film here. But yeah, she's, she's there. She's was, on it. This was the first time I'd picked that up in this film mm-hmm. is how she to no one else in the movie, including Maxim, mm-hmm. is in an anterior position. But in this movie, Flavelle is 
alpha and she's beta. Oh yeah. And he says, come on, Danny, move it along. I mean, he kind of screws her at the inquest and sort of, you know, like lets the cat out of the bag. And then she sort of just acquiesces and goes along with what he said. He's in charge of her. And I'm not sure how to get in my mind what it is that he holds over her, but he's got something on her. Exactly. Even when he shows, remember he walks through the window Mm -hmm. to meet Joan Fontaine and he's like, maybe I'll stay for some coffee because she just invited me. What a kind gesture. And you see Danny look at him like, get out of here. Oh, maybe that's not such the best idea. Mm -hmm. But even with that, it's not like get out because she would just say get out. She's like, I'm thinking maybe like even that's in a position of it might be a good idea for you to leave maybe now. Um, What do you think about leaving now? Mm -hmm. Strange relationship, but it works really well on screen. Yeah. But let's help Joan Fontaine out here. And I think one of the better moments of the film, she finally has enough. And yeah. she's like, you know, all this stuff and these relics of the past and these this ghost, like like the ghost of Rebecca is just a cloud over Joan Fontaine this entire film until like this one moment. Yes, Mrs. Danvers. I want you to get rid of all these things. These are Mrs. DeWinter's things. I am Mrs. DeWinter now. She has this kind of call to arms where she finally takes that title and does something with it where we're getting rid of all this past garbage. I'm leading this house now. And the first thing I'm going to do, I want to throw a big masquerade ball like the ones you all talked about in the past. And I'm going to make this one to be remembered. I think this is a great moment for her. It's her finally taking charge of this mantle as, you know, nameless as it might be for her still and trying to make the best of it. And I think she gets a little uh, on Mrs. Danvers at this point, being able to order her around a little bit. There's a pretty fun sequence to watch or sequence to watch Joan Fontaine grow up into the leading lady in this estate. Mm -hmm. And it comes in small pieces. And even in this moment of success that you just spelled out, here's the problem with it. Not just Miss Danvers is going to be pissed off. She's going to be pissed off at everything anyway. But she's, again, duplicating what they used to do with Rebecca at Manderley. So instead of throwing a masquerade ball, why don't you do a fireworks show or a barbecue or some other thing that shows, look, this is still a functioning place where people can come and celebrate and be part of the Manderley affect, but we're going to do it in our own way now. So she's getting, we're, she's really going to get there. Yeah, We're not quite there yet. And you know what? You, I don't know if Edith Head mm-hmm. is involved in this, but man, I wish she would because I think it would give that much more credence to the importance of her costuming in Hitchcock's films because there's also a very noticeable change as Joan Fontaine grows up in I'm, this movie. I'm going to look it up um, real quick. Why don't you kind of explain this kind of hellish party she plans? So everybody shows up, and it is a masquerade ball in the middle of the summer. Maxim can't be bothered with the costume because that would show, I guess, some personality, and he doesn't have any of that either. So we get some kind of funny. There's the graduate. They're like or professor. There's the strong man and his wife, who is uh, Maxim's sister, that show up. And there's that line where he says, are you coming as Adam and Eve? And the woman is just so, oh, that's disgusting. Really? But okay. Mm -hmm. And then upon the advice of Danny, Joan Fontaine has chosen to dress herself up not as the crusader or the Viking warris or any of the other kind of cool ones that she's drawn, but the portrait that hangs at the top of the stairs in the hallway by the bedroom quarters in Manderley. 
which she's been told that is the second cousin of the De Winter line, blah, 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 some family, whatever. Oh, that's a great idea. So Danny talks her into it and she puts on this dress and walks down the stairs ready for her introduction in this fine costume. And of course, Maxim Caesar and is just mortified. What a mess. <laughs> Such a mess. Take it off. Go upstairs. Change that. And we've come to find out that that's what Rebecca wore, the last masquerade ball that mm-hmm. she was an attendant at. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're at that moment where Danny has completely set up <clears throat> Rebecca. I'm sorry, to Joan Fontaine. And she's pissed. So she follows her into the room that I don't think she's been in yet, which is the room that Danny has said that's off limits. That was Rebecca's. But And so she goes into that room. Uh, maybe they've been in there once already. No, they've been in there already because that was the... Here's the closet full of fine furs and the underwear. So they've already been in there once. Mm -hmm. But okay, so she follows her in there and they have it out. And I can't tell you that Joan Fontaine comes out ahead in this having it out. I think Danny wins this battle too. Exactly. Why don't you go? Why don't you leave Mandalay? He doesn't need you. He's got his memories. He doesn't love you. He wants to be alone again with her. You've nothing to stay for. You've nothing to live for, really, have you? Look down there. It's easy, isn't it? Just kill yourself. At jump this out point. this window. Yeah, Look jump at the out concrete. this concrete. Yeah. You were funny, though. You said, yeah, that's about far enough to break your legs. Yeah, it's not high enough. Like, 20 foot fall is all. You had two compound fractures on your legs. Yeah. You'd yeah. want to be dead. Merely a flesh wound. <laughs> But still, yeah, like thank God for saved by the by the flare guns of this uh, crash ship out on kind of like the the bluffs over here because it totally diverts everyone's attention from this what well, would have been a shit show of a party um, after this kind of public display of like Max treating his wife to go go change and all this and that they're kind of driven to this 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 shipwreck and then it's told to us that what caused this shipwreck was this this sunken sailboat. Um, and this is the sailboat uh, of Rebecca. This was Rebecca's demise. She drowned while uh, while sailing one day, is what's told to us. But we're, we're about to get the real truth here. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, just <clears throat> you know Hitchcock's use of because you mentioned a couple of times just how like you know the long hallways, the use of shadows through the window and like the drapery. It's done very well in this film, whether through matte painting. Um, I think Hitchcock had a real good command of the of the tone. You know, we're setting tone here without, you know, um, you know, really saying anything. And I think this is another one of his strengths, and it's cool to see that in his first, you know, foray into American cinema, especially when you're working with a director like or a producer like David Oselznick, who I have a quote here from them in their working relationship because Oselznick essentially should have just been a director because he was such a control freak over his productions. And um uh, Hitchcock always said that Selznick was the big producer. Producer was king. And the most flattering thing he ever said to me, and it shows the amount of control he had, was that I was the only director he would trust with the film. And at the same time, old Selznick was like, he didn't like working with Hitchcock because Hitchcock would use the goddamn jigsaw cutting method, which meant that the producer had to follow Hitchcock's version. He couldn't toy with his final vision because Hitchcock would actually shoot a lot of stuff in camera. So whatever ended up there, there was no going back to like fix that or manipulate that. So the two of them kind of figured each other out. And while it was fruitful for Hitchcock to get his first steps into American cinema, and that became amazing 
going into the 50s, late 40s into the 50s. Here, yeah, there's kind of a butting of the heads of sorts. This isn't the Hitchcock that we know yet. Well, Selznick's famous for the incessant flow of notes to the director on whatever film he was producing. Mm -hmm. So if I paid for it and you were the director, you had to expect that there would be the little... And this is just so petty too. Yeah, the li- you can't even show up on set and say it. You've got to do it passive aggressively with a note mm-hmm. <laughs> in a maxim kind of way. You need to fix this. And idea, idea, and like so. If you take Hitchcock, who storyboards everything, and then he's getting this incessant flow of notes, it's going to speak to the de-evolution of that relationship. And I think by the time these two were finished with each other, they were really finished with oh, yeah. each other, big time. And you know, too many cooks in the kitchen, I guess. Oh, yeah. Um, I, we're lucky that we got some of the stuff that we ever got from Hitchcock, and mm-hmm. eventually he's going to tell Selznick to pound sand. Yeah, I'm just going to go do it on my own. I don't need you anymore. And I think Ropes, that first foray into that. There's no way El Selznick would have, or David O. Selznick would have let him. Ever, no way. In sequence, no 10 way. shots. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Like he, but he was kind of done by, by then, too. Yeah. His, like, momentum had kind of run out a little bit. Yeah. You mentioned something really interesting to me about the score of this film by Franz Waxman, which is distracting at times. Um, but this is a lot of classic Hollywood, and shit, I don't know when they introduced horns into a film score, but it's literally it's strings and harp, and it's consistent. There's a few moments of levity, like in the Inquisition scene, or the Inquest scene, Inquisition scene. But for the most part, it, it usually, like, if someone says something, we're supposed to be shocked. The, the music's going to let us know that we need to be shocked because it's so intense all the time. If you take the master thespian, Sir Lawrence Olivier, mm-hmm. and all of his grand performance and then add a grand score that's just <clears throat> crescendo string, ascending string, denouement string, harp. Yeah. I mean, I looked at you, and I, I thought... I, I was done with, listen, stop with the music. That's the one thing that I don't miss about Mm -hmm. early Hollywood is the oppressive. I mean that. And when you said that, it it made me think of something that I do miss that's very evident in this film as well, which is the ability for a camera to stay focused on characters and the reaction and not cut away. Like, like, you know, we get like six to seven seconds sometimes versus like one to two. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to kind of see Joan Fontaine's reaction to things being told to her in relation to the environment that it's established. And that's something that's totally gone today. That's fair. So we kind of got like a switcheroo of sorts. <laughs> Good and bad at the same time. Exactly. Did yeah. You, you're the big score guy between yeah. the two of us. After I brought that up where you're like, this is kind of bugging me too. But does I'm, it bug you like it does? But I'm me? not. I'm not a big like stringy score fan. No. Like I, I, I need horns in my musical score. Well, to you and me and the horns, because we talk about rock and roll with that all the time. God don't bless we? Chicago. God bless Chicago. Oh yeah, that's feeling a, stronger yeah. every single day. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. So let's get to the big moment of the film here. So now we're in the little seaside shack, um, and this is kind of the big reveal by Maxim Lawrence Olivier and. He kind of says, you know, that was her boat. And how do you know that was her boat? And how do you know it was there? Because I put it there. It was all a lie. I knew where Rebecca's body was. Lying on that cabin floor on the bottom of the sea. How did you know, Max? Because I put it there. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> no, you don't even need to do that. The music told us. <laughs> yeah but yeah this is the big moment here and we're like oh my god did like 
did you kill your wife? And she's kind of shocked a little bit. <laughs> the next words out of his mouth are like, please tell me you love me still. Like, what? Okay, yeah. Like, yes. I love you, Max. Like, no, you just maybe killed your wife. I'm not going to tell you that right now. I need more info. Right. So we get more kind of embellished on the scene of kind of, we, this is where we learn about the, this may be a fair tri- trio with, uh, with the cousin, Lavelle. And he went to confront them one night, hoping to catch the both of them, but it's only her, Rebecca. And they kind of have a big blowout, and it's a mess. And through a twist of fate, she, like, stumbles through, like, the precipice and, like, essentially kills herself on, like, some anchors. That's, yeah. I guess at least, well, before I do that. Yeah. Rye Nation. And something, there's something in script writing, screenwriting. Mm -hmm. Come on, Matt. There's something in screenwriting called the aside and the aside is usually done in some parenthetical manner and it breaks the fourth wall. And it's a conversation that the screenwriter has with the audience. Mm-hmm. I'm going to break the fourth wall for you all with Jesse right now. Cause I want you all to recognize how good my guy is getting with the board. The sound in this episode <laughs> is the best. Like Jesse is starting to master our Christmas present here. Yeah. And so shh, that's an aside. So it's in parentheses. So he didn't hear any of that. So back to what I was saying, because you didn't hear any of that, Mr. Gosh. In the script. Wait till next week when Ooh. we have one liners upon one liners. Oh, yeah. We might have like 16 sound bites. You might week. have to use all 32 tracks on this. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, so where were we? Okay, so. Tripping on the anchor, she killed herself. And then, you know, back in the day of like DNA and forensic evidence, there's like no way to like investigate this properly. Well, upon your research, you found out why. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great story. Please tell it. Okay. So th- there's, there's kind of a, a divergent paths here on the, the telling of the story. So in Rebecca, the book by Daphne de Moray. Also did the birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max kills Rebecca, shoots her with a gun. Mm. And Hollywood production code of the time, you know, it's so strict. You know, you know, sex was going into a tunnel with the train. Like that was sex. Or Three a, seconds of um, or roaring, interlocked lips, no open mouth, or a roaring fire. What? What? I think that was was that double indemnity. We did the mm-hmm. Hayes Code bit. Yeah. yeah. So if you want that in total, go back and listen to that podcast because mm-hmm. we lay it out pretty good. But directors and there's rules. Yeah, the, you can't do certain things. So if you kill someone, if I, I you you shot your wife, you have to pay for that. If we're going to show that on screen, and the story doesn't go that way, so we had to kind of come up with this back way to get there, which is. She tripped on the anchors and killed herself. <laughs> My God, like <laughs> it's like million dollar baby. You said right now. I just I just came to this right now. Sure. So run with me for a minute. Okay. I said one of the things I don't miss about this era is the overwrought score. Mm-hmm. You said the one thing you do miss is the camera not in such a hurry to get out of the scene. Exactly. Because the Hayes Code is in place, or the censorship bureau has the power to just completely derail your film and ne- never let it see the light of day, mm-hmm. you have to be real tricky in the way you show audiences important pieces without breaking those rules. Yeah, there's an art to that, mm-hmm. and I think this is doing that really, really well. Um, directors prior to let's say 1970, mm-hmm. that's kind of when the Hayes Code effectively goes away, and people sort of figured out what that means and what you're allowed to show. Maybe a little bit earlier, but let's. Just Sort of 1970. Yeah, around that time. Okay. You have to smartly deliver stuff that won't wreck your movie. Mm-hmm. And it creates an artistic and a masterful way of storytelling that is subtle. And like we've said, whether it's sex or monsters or ghosts or violence 
Well, it's no, even gonna, not even sometimes less is more. Always less is more. Well, it's even going to get it really into like the treatment of like Japanese and German peoples right. and whether you're on the right side of the war. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can't have Maxim kill this woman because that's what the story is, and he has to get what they deem as just comeuppance. It, it can't even be internal conflict, which is more that like the biggest hell that anyone could ever be in, like in real life, the guilt on that. Can I tell you real quick, though? We do get this kind of again in A Place in the Sun. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Someday, can we please do that oh, film? Yeah, that'll be a good one. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. You just named one of my top 10. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I think that's what I wanted to say. No, yeah, I think I, I missed that. No, I think that's I think that's well said. I think you know the tripping on the anchors. I think is a little flimsy for me, but I'm I'm willing to kind of go with it because it's going to kind of send us into this next like final bit of the film, which is this inquest on like we need to reopen the investigation. We found her boat, and that this couldn't have caused that. And there they are interviewing the the mentally ill man. He's like, I don't want to go to the asylum, bro. That's where you're going because you're cuckoo. <laughs> What if the like the constable even kind of shrugs your shoulders like yeah too bad so this guy we we talked about it off mic but mm-hmm. let's do it here too yeah sometime this year mm-hmm. the remake of this movie is due for Netflix yeah Lily James and Army Hammer as the second Mrs De Winter and Maxim and yeah, that could be good so without it, it could be yeah but part of the success of this is as much as we spent some time talking about what's shown, it's what's not shown. The ghosts that actually aren't there, but mm-hmm. that are alluded to. Oh, well said. Um, all of those things. <clears throat> so now we are on Netflix, so it's a paid-for subscription service, so you can pretty much do it any way you want. Yeah. Show that threesome. <laughs> right? And that might either be really good or it might be really bad. Now, exactly. I'm hoping this sees the light of day because, and I didn't spend hours. I spent about 15 minutes, but there seems to be... Is it show or film? No, film. Okay. There seems to be... Well, as of now. Okay. There seems to be a little bit of development issues. Mm. I think this has been in the works for a while. Okay, that I, they don't even officially have a release date yet. It is slated for sometime in the mid to latter part of 2020. Okay, it should be, man, Jesse. It should be in February. This is a February film for sure. Oh, big time! But it's. I don't think it's going to make it. Okay, so we'll see what it looks like and if they're going to keep it Victorian. Um, I almost wonder if they're waiting on the returns for the turning because that is sort of hearkening to that same era. Sure. Yeah. And all of that is kind of, it's not, but the Downton Abbey, like there, there is as much as there seems to be some momentum with that type of 18 boring setting for a film. I, I don't know if there really is like we're claiming. Sure. Um, and we're going to have to talk about the turning, maybe not a full, a full episode, but mm-hmm. maybe like a shot because you gave me some information this week that broke my heart, but that's might not, need a shot after that one. We might God, please, please don't give me a second version of what 2019 was in that ridiculous film noir. <laughs> Please don't do that to me again. I can't even remember the name of it right oh, now. Oh, you know the name of it. I can't even say it. I won't say it for don't you. Don't do it. So, Flavel. Okay, I just, I just no, Fl- derailed that whole conversation. No, you didn't. Sorry, good go. I got us back. You know, Flavel comes back in. Here comes Clive Owen. He gets in the carriage. He eats their chicken. And he's kind of coming in with the blackmail now. And he's like, Max, I know what really happened. This is what I want. I want these. These are my terms and conditions. And I have all the evidence to prove it. And boom, in comes my key witness, Mrs. Danvers. Yes. Like kind of like literally this is the, 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 the other than, you know, Joan Fontaine kind of giving it to her and saying, this is the way we're going to run the house now. This is kind of her saying, you know, you come out here. You do not command the scene here. Yeah, I'm, I'm using you now. And yeah, it's all very interesting and it's all kind of just happening so quickly 
what's going to happen with Joan Fontaine? What's going to happen with Manderley and the help? And like the, their marriage is Max going to go to jail? Like what's going to happen? And it all rests on the testimony of this doctor who you said is, is he's actually in North by Northwest as well. Yeah. It's the CIA agent that basically <clears throat> it deems Cary Grant expendable yeah. in that movie till he can't be expendable. Mm-hmm. The whole crux of this case. Yes. And where I think we buy off the fact that Maxim isn't this great guy is that uh, Rebecca seems to be pregnant with what we come to find out is her cousin's son. Never described. God, but, that's sick. Right. Flavel's seed is in her. <laughs> Did I really just say that? Flavel. Well, well, that's, is, that's the film. It is. That's what happens. <laughs> and she has told Maxim that. I'm going to give you a son mm-hmm. and there's no way you're going to say that this is a bastard child because that's going to wreck everything that Manderley represents exactly. and all of your legacy of in pomp and circumstances then up in flames and you can't get divorced because that's not a good look on your family. Mm-hmm. So guess what? And I'm going to laugh all the way to the grave, Maxim. Yep. You're going to raise a son that's not yours. And then when you die, he's going to take your estate. And this is me <clears throat> telling you and all of your likes F you, mm-hmm. and I'm going to stick it to you. Oh, yeah. And so this sends Maxim into a tirade, which then leads to the and then she tackle on the ship. <laughs> and then she, see, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Damn you, Hayes Code. It, and then she trips and dies on an anchor. Yeah. Come on, yeah. let him shoot her. Yeah, that's, that's, it's flimsy, but I'm still, I'm still going. But, okay, I'm with you too, right? Yeah, I'm going. Damn you, the Hayes Code. Yeah. Not Hitchcock, the Hayes Code. Oh, yeah, middle finger to the Hayes Code. George Saunders. Middle, fin- middle finger to the Comics Code while we're at it too. Right. <laughs> Yes. George, would you want to give a middle finger to Clive Owen at the same time? You can get three for one here on sale today. Middle finger to Clive Owen. Not okay. <clears throat> the, you just made me, I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, we should get Clive Owen on this show, man. We'd have a great <laughs> conversation with them. Okay. So there's a reason for Maxim to take on this this action that he's taken on, and Flavel seems to have all of it, and it pins it, it's pinned on the note that's in his lapel mm-hmm. pocket. Mm-hmm. He's got the note, and at the inquest <clears throat> where we're looking into the boat that has then arisen from the depths that has found the Mrs. The, the Rebecca on there that so it's not the Rebecca that's been buried, and now. Maxim has to explain why he identified the buried woman as Rebecca when it clearly wasn't. And now there's some questions in foul play. And this whole thing is falling apart at the seams. Gosh, also the have... new circuits today would be all over this. All thing. over this. Oh, yeah. God, yes. <laughs> They'd love this. Yeah, as scandalous as Chappaquiddick is, this is that times they five. Would, they would love this. They would love it. <laughs> you knew what I would, too. Yeah. So um, he pulls out the note. Mm-hmm. And he says, there's no way a woman would commit suicide on this boat, which is the last hope, mm-hmm. the Hail Mary that Maxim is throwing is she killed herself on this boat. Yeah, There's no way a woman that says, I'm going to see you later tonight because I have something important to tell you would do herself in a few hours before we took that meeting. Yeah. Okay, so go. Let me take that Hail Mary reception. There it is in the air. There the we... Denver Bronco res- uh, DB just fell down, and the Ravens have just walked into the end zone. Oh, good. How, How did I do dude, that Dude, that, that was low. That was low. That was a low blow. At least you were there. The Chargers haven't even been there. Okay. All right. <laughs> so the Helmer reception is this doctor, this Mr. Spy from North by Northwest, and he has the corroboration. Well, she didn't come in as Rebecca. She came in as Mrs. Danvers, this alias. And um, we kind of find out. Um, he says she wasn't pregnant, right? Yeah, no. Yeah, but and the the creme de la creme, 
she was sick with cancer. Mm -hmm. So therefore kind of giving a somewhat cause to commit suicide. I'm terminally ill. I'm just going to end it. And so then all kind of suspicion is off of Max at this point. Yes. So, but not before Clive Owen can get on the horn with Mrs. Danvers and saying, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's all kind of like coming apart at the seams here. And man, she just takes, she's like, you know what? Screw it. It's all ruined. No inherit. Whatever our plan was, it's all going up in flames. Forget this legacy and this house. We're torching it, so to speak. I love watching that Mandalay burn to the mm-hmm. ground because Danny's not going to have Rebecca's reputation tarnished or at least not be present to hear what happens in the tarnishment. I feel like there's a missing scene, though, of Mrs. Danvers creating the fire and maybe some type of last confrontation between her and Mrs. Danvers. Like, like one last send off or like something like, why are you doing this? And like that, this, this legacy will never continue on without me. I'm burning it to the ground. It's well, too bad. Cause he even sets it up. She's asleep with Jasper, the dog in yeah. her lap. Mm-hmm. And Miss Danvers has the candle and looks at her and then gives him one of those awesome, crazy facial mm-hmm. link looks that she does. I, I agree. There should be that in there. It feels like this type of film would have something like that. Of course. Watch them go at it one more time. Cause then you know what else you finish? Mm-hmm is if Joan Fontaine stands up to Danny one more time and Mm -hmm. then really gives it to her, then she's at least ascended to a position where she's a woman that deserves a name. Yeah. Again, in a nondescript way, she just escapes. God, wouldn't that have been a great way to end the movie when Joan Fontaine and Lawrence Olivia kind of like embrace at the end and kiss each other that he like calls her by her first name? Oh, Jesse, yes. That's such good to that. That's the best sour mash. I just sour mashed all. Rebecca. <laughs> no, but that's, you're right. That could have been good. And that would have been a good moment for Joan Fontaine too. Here you are, this nondescript female this entire time. And then we learn her first name at the end. Well, that's Daphne du Maurier. Like she should have done that. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. I don't, yeah, yeah. You're, that's, yes. So Manderley burns down. It's going up in flames. Whatever life they're going to have is going to be outside of this life here at this haunted place now uh and there's mrs danvers in like the precipice of the flame she's going up with the house and then we had that citizen kane moment now we got to call it the rebecca moment when we watch citizen kane because the camera just pans through the fire until we get the final shot on the pillowcase of the monogram of r kind of like this is rosebud all over again you know what i mean right yeah this is rosebud before look it's even r Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean i'm surprised the sled isn't named rebecca yeah (laughs) <laughs> right yeah that's pretty that's a good point i'm sort of wondering now in the netflix version of this yeah if they'll hit on those two tropes because i think there's there's um an opportunity here mm-hmm. i think maxim set up if they want to go this route and especially with army hammer to be a really good anti-hero sure like we understand why maybe he doesn't do the most superman heroic things mm-hmm. because his background has set him up to where he's not capable of. But whereas Thanos was right, but the execution was wrong, mm-hmm. this is wrong, but the execution is is right, sure. or at least justified. The other thing, too, that it also presents an opportunity is where I think Rebecca can really have cross-gender approval in the 2020 version is if the woman, which would be Lily James, can get past Army Hammer as Maxim's faults and still love him and fix him, then you get poison for women, which mm-hmm. is I'm going to fix the bad boy. Yeah. And if you're a female and listening to this right now, I am putting you straight on blast. It's a thing. 
Mm-hmm. Like that guy does all these terrible things, but he's going to love me enough to where I can domesticate him and it's going to be okay because he loves me enough, which is mostly vanity. And grease. Right? <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm sour mashing something that hasn't even come out yet. Um, and you did a great job sour mashing like Hitchcock's most critically sure. acclaimed film. Sure. But I do like watching Manderley, I almost just called it Xanadu, watching yeah. Manderley burn to the ground. Mm-hmm. And... Miss Danvers look up as the support beams around her crush her in a fiery crushing demise. Yeah. No, it's interesting too. It's like the title of the film is Rebecca and we never physically see Rebecca at all. Not even in flashback. There's that great flashback. We didn't touch on this where they're in the, in a little seaside uh, shanty shack and the camera kind of like shows the tray of ashes and then pans up and then pans to the oh, left. That's so good. Almost like ghostly, like this is where she walked and uh, this is the path she did. But but some films might show that scene and show the person. And I like that Hitchcock had restraint not to show a flashback of that because it, then it, you retain that kind of like apparition-like state that the film has. Well, what is a ghost? Yeah. Ghosts only work if you actually don't see them. They're ectoplasmic residue, Matt. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Vickman. Mm-hmm. If the ghost shows up, you take the genie out of the bottle. Mm-hmm. And I love that Hitchcock does that scene that you brought up specifically because yeah. you watch what happened the night that Maxim and Rebecca finally had it out for the final mm-hmm. showdown. The other thing, too, and thank you for bringing it up, yeah. is the title of the film. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've talked about this ad nauseum. Yeah. If the movie's named after a character, it's a character study. Maybe part of the necessity of keeping the second Mr. Winter so nondescript until the end mm-hmm. is this is Rebecca's story. Yeah. Because as it's unfolded through the storytelling of what happened, we do get a pretty good picture of what a truly horrible woman Rebecca was. Yeah. And then that then is a character study and go. the effects of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I almost forgot to even bring that up till you said it. Sure. The movie's named Rebecca. Mm-hmm. It's not named... What, I guess if it was named the second Mrs. DeWinter, it wouldn't have a name. It would just be blank. Well, that's a horrible title. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, that's no. a horrible name, too, for Joan Fontaine. So, no, yeah. It yeah. is, but mm-hmm. uh, but to a larger whole, yes, to mm-hmm. a larger whole, if this is Joan Fontaine's character study and the the story doesn't change, no, yeah. what's the title of this film? Well, no, it's even, it's even better, too, because, you know, Rebecca, it's all about kind of enveloping the past of what had happened here at this house prior to the fateful night. But uh, Joan Fontaine, I think, also represents a kind of fish-out-of-water type character. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Here she is, this kind of, um, not as upper class as Max is, but she kind of comes in this world not with a lot as much money as him, and she's kind of very overwhelmed by the entire experience. So we see everything through her eyes and her experiences, and I think that's handled very well in this film. That's what um, I like, too, overwhelmed. Yeah. She's just overwhelmed. Excellent. She'd probably get there, but she's overwhelmed at the beginning. Definitely. To all of that. Yeah. Yeah, good. Excellent. Well, I think time now more than ever. Let's rate review or rate Rebecca. We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Matt, I'll let you go first. There's an expression out there that people say that it grows on you. And that can be for it's an acquired taste. And it kind of works with, I think, the cask or the rating system that we have. When I first tried bourbon the first time, I didn't like it. Mostly it was because it was bad bourbon. Yeah. Like it was just Jack Daniels, black label, you know. not. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not bagging on Jack Daniels, but that's if you're drinking bourbon, you're probably not drinking that neat. Exactly. Or you don't know what you're doing yet. Mm-hmm. I don't even profess to be some bourbon expert. I just like it. And I know what's 
good and what isn't ish. Mm -hmm. All right. I think once upon a time, this movie was for me, Gentleman Jack. Mm -hmm. I used to think that was a really, really great bourbon. And it was important to me because it exposed me to there is a better quality out there that is yet untapped by you and your taste buds. Mm -hmm. I mean, top five of all time, once upon a time, I loved Rebecca. Yeah. Whereas the viewing experience this morning wasn't maybe as enjoyable as it had been in the past. And that might be that the reveal is very familiar because I've seen this movie 10-ish times. Yeah. So maybe that's taken away. What has, so that's decreased, but what has increased, especially today, is the impact that I think this film had on movie going going forward. And also Hitchcock's introduction to an American audience in an American-styled film. Compare this to like Blackmail or Saboteur. Mm -hmm. They're different. Yeah. And you can't continue to make British films in the United States in 1940 and have any success. Oh, yeah. So what does all that mean in the grading system? I think (laughs) what it means for me is if I combine impact going forward from this film in Hollywood to viewing experience, this is single barrel minus. And the single barrel piece being, for me, not necessarily unique, but important and unique. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how much I used to love this film. Yeah. And so far as like, there's a movie poster of Rebecca that I own that was given to me by you. <laughs> exactly. Because And you don't just do that for a movie that someone kind of likes. Well, I think I asked you. I was like, you know, I used to get, you know, presents for my teachers. God, what a brown noser I was. Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> but I think I asked you just because I was your I was your student aide. I was, I was like, Matt, like, what's your, like, your favorite, like, favorite movie? And you like came on to Rebecca and I was like, I was like, I'll see if I can find that. And we have a great, you know, local poster store here. And I, I went and found it and, uh, kind of gifted that to you. And that was, that was, then you held that in your house for a long time. It's really cool. It's a great image of the two of them in a very ghostly Rebecca, like at the bottom of the, the poster frame in kind of a pulpy art sort of way that yeah. it's, it's, it's a really great poster. That, that, that's some, that's some good art, but like, I, I know what, I know what you mean. Like when we were, I was watching this, I was like, I know it's Hitchcock, but it's like it's kind of not Hitchcock at the same time. It feels very Selznicky studio. Kukor could have kind of made this film and maybe Capra or one of those guys kind of floating around at this time. You brought up when mm-hmm. we were watching it, Frank Capra with It Happened One Night in Clark Gable, and yeah. I thought the same thing. This is a Capra film <clears throat> or Orson Welles. Yeah, yeah, it could be. And I think it took a while for him to kind of find a, like a little bit of his American niche of here's what I can kind of put my stamp visually and cinematically uh, on film but it's uh, to me rebecca like i've always really liked it and i'm gonna go with the rating of single barrel because a lot of the same things it's a very important film his most critically acclaimed um and we'll get more on that here in a second but it introduced him it brought him here because then once he got tapped into paramount and you, you like universal and a lot of these companies he was able to do wonders like filmic masterpieces and i'm very appreciative of that but um you know, it's just, it's just all very interesting, you know, uh, Rebecca. And I think it's been more uh, obvious being the last two films that we reviewed, Rope and Vertigo. Yeah. Those are two, I think, better made films. Fair. And better acted films. Uh, but yeah, so Single Barrel. It's I think it's a very important film in his filmography uh, for a multitude of different reasons. His thumbprint is there, but not quite. But, um, yeah, it's pretty unique. I, I recommend you check it out if you can find the Criterion Blu-ray. I Find that version. 
But yeah, it's always been kind of an interesting journey to kind of revisit this film. Best Picture, 1940. If I was to say sophomoric, you would probably say, ooh, that's not yeah. a ringing endorsement. It, but I'm going to use that in the regards with this film that it's a start and we're going to watch from this movie, not only Hollywood, but also Hitchcock, grow up a little bit sure, and grow up into the birds. And there is a piece of this that's a little bit auteur, a little bit like that early 1940s Citizen Kane-ish mm -hmm. was all about tone. And if you and I don't have tone, then you and I don't have 67 through 74, bud. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Hollywood and the tone and the manner and Hitchcock grow up. And I mean, that's why I'm saying semi-sophomoric. Mm -hmm. Now, a fantastic sophomoric effort. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to pick qualms with like, oh, how was that the best picture in 1940? Give me a break. Yeah. In 1940? Yeah. How do I even know? Yeah. I don't even know what it was up against. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it... It hasn't aged great in some regards, but that's not a fault of the movie. It's just what the landscape was at the time and what was available. But it might be a fault of his filmography too, because let's just get right into it with our nightcap question. Okay, perfect. Hitchcock's made a lot of really great films, like really good, like mm -hmm. a lot that I want to put in like the top 10 of a lot of lists. So this is what he won Best Picture for. So my question to you, Matt, is other than Rebecca, which film of his should have won Best Picture? I'm saying the rule for this, though, is it can't be vertigo. Okay. <laughs> That's just... Because it's so obvious. If you and I are going to sort of use the flight... Okay, sure, so sure. behind the scenes, an aside, Ryan Nation, here's another aside. Yeah. If part of the flight or nightcap goal mm -hmm. is to get you to sort of venture into films that maybe Ooh, you hadn't seen before... That's good. That's good. I don't mm -hmm. think me telling you it's going to be vertigo after we just did a podcast on it last week yeah. serves that purpose. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so... It's Vertigo, but I can't use Vertigo. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is going to freak you out that I'm going to come to this answer. Okay. Because I almost didn't believe myself until I made myself watch it on Thursday night because it kept coming up oh. over and over and over again. You watched it. Okay. And I made myself sit down and watch it. Okay. Dude, it's notorious. Here's why. Mm -hmm. It's written by um, Ben Hecht. Okay. So the script is brilliant. Here's Ben Hecht's scriptography if you will okay his girl friday Ooh. gilda there you go uncredited for duel in the sun and maybe you've heard of this one uncredited for this movie weird this tiny little film called gone with the wind mm. <laughs> ben hecht is sits on the throne of screenwriting greatness like with william goldsmith sure or goldwin mm -hmm. oh my god goldman thank you goldman that's shame on me Ooh, that's bad <laughs> so it's written by him yeah consider when it was released 1946 mm -hmm. And to show the American governmental secret service forces as essentially the bad guy mm -hmm. goes back to what we talked about in this movie. It's daring, like the homosexual nature that was not allowed to mm -hmm. show the United States military efforts clandestine as, yeah, I'm a bit nefarious. Sure. To present, okay, this is also going to make you laugh, to present the Nazis in a really likable way through Claude Rains. Mm -hmm. Our boy. Right. Yeah. And he's really likable in that movie. And this, so it kept coming up. I'm like, man, is it notorious? Is it notorious? And then to show Grant and Bergman, mm -hmm. which that would be the quintessential roles for Hitchcock, but I didn't want to use them in the flight because mm -hmm. I didn't want to get let this rabbit out of the bag. Yeah, that's good. So it's Anthony Perkins, A minus, and Cary Grant in this movie, A plus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, 
you know, we've talked about this a couple times in this cask as being like the sixth man or seventh man or something on the bench. Mm-hmm. I'm walking that back. Starting five. Man, this is the power forward. Okay. This is Tim Duncan. Nice. It is the most fundamentally sound in a starting five that has ever been on the annals of Hitchcock's all pro team. Sure. It's really, and it's well acted and Grant and Bergman have terrific chemistry. That's more Grant in my opinion than it is Bergman. He mm-hmm. didn't look bad with anyone ever. Mm-hmm. And he, she's not even my favorite. It's Irene Dunn and him. That's my favorite on-screen couple ever. Yeah. That movie is really, really good, Jesse. And I'm not just saying that to, oh, yeah. s- to prove myself right to you when I watched it. I sat there watching it like, damn, this movie is is wildly terrific. Sure. So on the starting five, we probably have Notorious. We have Psycho. Yeah. We have Vertigo. Yep. We have probably North by Northwest. Okay. And probably Rear Window. So I'm going to tackle probably maybe the point guard or the shooting guard on this lineup. Awesome. It has to be Psycho. Okay. Um. But I, I can understand why it probably, I don't even think it was nominated back in 60 when that film came out because it was so shocking. Like film peep audiences hadn't seen anything like this before. Film horror villains prior to that were nuclear monsters and the universal lineup of, you know, you know, the lineup. To take that and make it like this man, this this literalist psycho who was influenced by, you know, you know people like Ed Gein, real life serial killers, it had to be jarring for people. And I can understand why people maybe not, they maybe didn't like it in 1960 when it came out. So, you know, public perception on that is is more shock than awe. But when you really peel back Psycho for what it is, it's a true, true masterpiece. The Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins, you know, Martin Balsam, John Gavin, Vera Miles, the cinema, I love that he went black and white with this film, and he essentially made it with his Alfred Hitchcock's Presents television crew, and it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's edited Bernard Herrmann's best score. I have to pick Psycho, but that's like for 1960, like that film would never, like horror in general, other than like Silence of the Lambs, The Exorcist, and like Sixth Sense have like, and Get Out, have been the only ones to clume some notoriety with the Academy. There's no way Psycho could ever kind of be in that conversation but it totally deserves to be. You will find no qualms for me on that. Yeah. For all of the things that Psycho is for Hitchcock that pinned him as a kind of a horror director, mm-hmm. and, and, and he's not. He's just not. Mm-hmm. And his closest film to horror after Psycho is probably The Birds. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it's a monster movie. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's... He's known in ingenue circles for that movie... And meanwhile, he has this other really great career as suspense slash thriller. Yeah, psychological. Mm-hmm. That movie, <clears throat> as a one-off, mm-hmm. could contend with any Best Picture nominee in the last 20 years. Ooh. I mean that. Well, let's put him up. Let's let's do it. Right? I'd put Psycho up against a film like The Godfather. And I love The Godfather. The Godfather's like top 10. Psycho's also top 10. Agreed. I'd put that film up against any film. It's, it's well-made. So... I loved your starting five. Okay. Can I ask you one more question? Go ahead. If that's your starting five, yeah. another important role in the basketball lineup is sixth man. Okay. And then coach. So okay. give me the sixth man and give me the coach. Well, the coach, I'd, I'd probably, I, I wouldn't pick a film. I'd probably pick like Alfred Hitchcock's coach in his starting five. Sixth man though, I got to go shadow the doubt. You know, I love that film. Not quite like top tier like those other films, but like it's right there. 
Man, yeah. Uncle Charlie, man. You love him. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. As you were doing that, I was like, is he going to go? That was great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, Matt, let me, if you want to give me the pleasure to introduce what's coming up, because I'm, ex- I'm, ex- I'm excited, but like worried, worried at the same time, me like, too. big time. So I'm worried about how I'm going to feel after the podcast. Cause we might both be kind of sick. <laughs> Go though. So what's been asked of rice smile, just talking, you know, with friends and, and, you know, everyone that's kind of listening, we've talked just jokingly on the podcast that we need to do rock gut films with rock gut bourbon. Oh. Well, I think, you know, it kind of lined up perfectly for us. So we're going to definitely do that on February. I think it's seventh or eighth. And here's the disclaimer, just kind of, Right up front, we have the DC Warner Brothers release of Birds of Prey, the Harley Quinn film. Now, Matt and I don't know if that film's going to be rock gut. Yes, we do. No, our film, our but but our <laughs> our intuition, hope, our our intuition, and our hope for film just quality in 2020 is to be better than it was in 2019. Yes, Matt and I want this film. Want we want this to be a winner. And boy, does DC need a winner. And man, I, I would love more than to do two rock gut films and then to kind of give this like single barrel. Like I would love to do that. I would love to do that. But um, just kind of on that trajectory to give you a new release to kind of look forward to, we're going to tackle DC rock gut. And Matt, I can't believe we're going to do this. You know, I'm such a huge Batman fan. And you, you, you're a huge George Clooney fan. I, I can't believe the first Batman film and George Clooney film we're going to cover on Rice Smile Films is Batman and Robin from 1997. Blech. Yeah. So, so I'm going to match your film okay. with the terrible drink for next week. Okay. I got next week's drink set up. Okay. Do you want me to tell you now, or do you want me to sit yeah. on it and expose no, it? No, go ahead. Week? Go ahead. We're going to drink the alcoholic version of a peanut butter and jelly. I'm bringing in a bottle of Screwball, which is that gross peanut butter whiskey, and we're going to drink it with Grape Crush on this podcast and we're going to have a grape pb and j screwball oh god i know okay that's why i said after the talk about the film and then the dowsing of our souls with that trash yuck <laughs> the dowsing of our souls yeah so this should be interesting yeah like yeah dc films like they have some winners in there donner superman you know the nolan stuff with batman you know, they have some some pretty good films in their pantheon. But, man, I think that they have more trash than, like, anything. We're not going to do Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, or Superman 3, or Richard Pryor. <laughs> We're not going to do Green Lantern. But, like, yeah, that's how bad it, it, it is. Yes. And, yeah, to, to talk about a film that almost literally killed Batman, and we're going to get into a lot of that. 1997's Batman and Robin. It's going to be a ridiculous... Matt's going to come over and watch it before we record. I don't even know what what to expect, but just expect it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of sour mashing on how this could have been way better, and we're going to have some fun shots along the way of talking about films. Oh, that could have been. Right. Mm -hmm. This is on request from Ryan Nation, so thanks a lot for making us feel terrible about this next week. Well, I think I've told you too, Matt. I like like when the films are good. I like when they're masterpieces, but I also kind of like when they're kind of shitty because like... I like I like kind of riffing on the shittiness, but then I also like trying to find ways to fix it. What could have been? What could have been? Like yeah. Amazing Spider-Man 2 shouldn't have been as bad as it was. There's a good film in there. Yep. Unfortunately, it's just so much excess. And, and I think, to what you're saying, I think next week, mm-hmm. look, the villains that they use in that movie 
are used over and over in Batman canon. So mm -hmm. there is a good film in there. Can mm -hmm. we find a way to get to it? So, and I'll just say this right now, George Clooney should be the perfect quintessential, Batman. no doubt. He, he's the definition of Bruce Wayne. For sure. Yeah. We're going to yeah. get, we're going to get into all of that. Agreed. So until then, Matt, until then, cheers. I got to get going. I got to go get planning for a masquerade ball. I am not going to dress up as a Mrs. DeWinter. I think I'm going to go as a pirate. What's my name? <laughs> you don't have a name. Damn it. I'm not any better. <laughs> Excellent, Rye Nation. We'll see you next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Rebecca is property of United Artists and Selznick International Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Maxie! Thank you you come back to me. Are you all right, Tommy? Oh, yes, sir. Are you all right? Mrs. Danvers. She's gone mad. She said she'd rather destroy a man to live and see us happy here. Look! The West Wing! <laughs> <laughs>